going back to you know coming from a small island like going to the olympics is a huge dream something that's like out of reach for so many people here Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! They're all completely gassed! They've given it everything on the global bucket! Oh, yeah! Oh! Oh! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic championship. Ready? Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. Happy Olympic Day. Happy one month to Tokyo. So much to celebrate today. It's very exciting. And intense. It's just like everything. Like Olympic Day seemed to creep up on us. It did. And and what was funny was I had scheduled some social media announcements earlier. I did a whole bunch of, of pre, pre-posting. And when it popped up today in my own feed of my own post, I was like, oh, it's Olympic Day. I was like, wait, I posted that. Well, so I got to be excited about the same post more than once, which was great. So thank you, Olympic Day. And then, of course, everyone is posting about 30 days to go. You know, it, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, it's here. It's almost here. There's still a lot to do, but I can't wait for it to get here so that we can stop dealing with all of the hand-wringing and worrying and speculation about what could happen at these games. You know, it's all the anxiety ahead of time because we don't know what we're dealing with in many ways. And once we get there and we're dealing with it, we'll all feel better. Exactly. Exactly. So everybody keep their keep their hats on. Have a good Olympic Day. And in the U.S., it's Olympic and Paralympic Day, which I, I get what the USOPC is doing. I also wish there was a separate Paralympic Day. Oh, yeah. You know, IPC, get on that. Or we get Absolutely. on it and see if I know. We'll send one. a letter to Andrew Parson yeah. and uh, let him know what we think. Because, because he I... listens to us so much. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, yeah. But no, I think it would be nice to have a separate one. Sometimes I, 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 lo- I love the inclusion that's happening here in the U.S., but I also think that I, sometimes it feels like, oh, we're tacking on Paralympics to make sure they're included, whereas sometimes we need to celebrate the Paralympics separately and not have them always lumped in with the Olympics. Right, to get the recognition as its own event mm-hmm. that it deserves. Right, and not just for the, the two weeks that the event is on. Anyway, we've got a little housekeeping before uh, we move on to today's interview, because if you heard a fourth voice in last week's interview with Ben Ryan and, and thought you were hearing something odd, you weren't. It was Book Club Claire, who was also on the interview, and we, we just forgot to mention it ahead of, of last week's interview, but she was there for that and chimed in when she uh, had some questions, and it was great to have her around. So, Claire, we're sorry we uh, forgot to mention you on last week's intro. If you missed Ben Ben Ryan's interview, go back and listen to it after this show because it was a really great listen, especially if you need advice about proper sunscreen protection. He knows. Though what was really funny is he was posting, Ben Ryan was posting this week, encouraging Fijians to get the vaccine. Oh, nice. But he had a sunburn. (laughs) (laughs) So 
obviously that wasn't on purpose, but I could think of his Fijian players, as he said, made fun of him a lot because of his pale skin. So I said, yes, the Fijians will respect the burn (laughs) on their little ginger. (laughs) Also, keep listening to today's show. We have a big announcement that we will share later on. But first, uh, we'd like to thank our Patreon patrons for their financial support. If you value what this show provides to you in terms of information and community, we'd love to have your support as well. Financially, you can do that by becoming a Patreon patron. That's at patreon.com slash flamealivepod, and you'll get special patron-only bonuses. And if you can't uh, swing that right now, tell a friend about the show because we love finding more and more of our people uh, there's more people joining the Facebook group and conversations are really heating up because it's a lot of fun around an uh, Olympics. So please join us there and tell your friends to listen. Today, we are talking with swimmer Felicity Passant, who competes for the African island nation of the Seychelles. Felicity has qualified for the Olympics in the 200 meter backstroke, which is her main event. We talked with her at the end of May. So at that time, she hadn't competed in over 14 months and was hopefully hoping to qualify for a couple more events at an upcoming event meet in Barcelona that she talks about in the interview. She did not start at that meet, but hopefully she'll be competing again before Tokyo happens. We talked with her about swimming, and we also talked about what it's like to represent a small country at the Olympics. Take a listen. What is race practice? Because I I noticed uh, American swimmers are starting to come back, so we're looking at some of their times, Mm -hmm. and I noticed stuff is a little bit slower, but also, I've heard a little bit about getting back into race mentality or race form. What What is that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that is what it is, really. Like, the basics of, yeah, the mentality is a huge thing. I mean, I guess to really be in that environment and know how to focus yourself, but also, you know, not let you psych yourself out, get too nervous. Those are things that I feel like I've probably forgotten how to do, and I just have to, like, you know, really get into racing mode I guess uh, but also physically I mean you know have I guess your mind and body ready to get going like you should in a race um, I haven't done it in a really long time so for me to then uh, now go next week and be in that environment it's gonna be kind of a weird feeling you know um, so yeah I guess race practice is just you know knowing how to race your event the little things as, as so like so going from the dive turns finishes just those little things that really do add up and can mean whether you like win or come second or you know shave off a little bit of your time all those little things matter and the only way to really improve on those is to practice and um, I guess a racing environment is the best way to do that. Now, during the pandemic, have you been in the Seychelles the whole time because you are in uh, in college here in the United States? Yeah. So um, actually, right when the pandemic hit, I was actually in the middle of my gap year. So I had done two years um, at university. And then because of the Olympic year, I wanted to take a year out to really focus on my training and focus on being able to qualify for the Olympics. So I took a gap year from uh, 2019, so September. Uh, That would have been my junior year. And I decided to go to South Africa to train under a coach called Rocco Mehring. He's got some really great swimmers there. And so I guess 
in February or actually it was beginning of March. That's when the pandemic really started to propagate and things were getting really bad all around the world. It wasn't so bad in South Africa yet, but things had started to go into panic mode in the Seychelles. And my mom was obviously really worried, like, what if it does get worse? And then I'm stuck in South Africa by myself without any family. So we just, I guess, kind of monitored everything. And Seychelles then announced they were going to close their airports and close their borders completely. So I got on the last flight back from South Africa to the Seychelles. And the next day, they like completely shut down the airports. So ever since last year, March, I've been in the Seychelles, unable to get to America because I was unable to get to anywhere that would help me do my student visa. And so sadly, yeah, I mean, it's been really nice to be with my family, but yeah, I've been studying remotely now. Um, so I had to start again last year, August, um, for my junior year. So yeah, I've been here in the Seychelles ever since, and I'm hoping now to be able to get back um, in August for my senior year. How much access to coaching and training facilities do you have in this? I mean, the Seychelles is not a big country. It doesn't have a very long, uh, certainly Olympic history or even sporting history. So what kind of facilities and coaching can you can you get? I mean, yeah, the Seychelles is really, really small and we are so completely isolated. I mean, we're a small group of islands off the coast of Africa. There's literally not much around us. So our facilities are really, really limited. I mean, our population is only about 90,000 people. So I think that gives you an idea of what we have access to and what we're capable of doing. Um, so, yeah, I don't actually have much access to great coaches. I mean, we have some coaches here who do help me out. I'm still getting programs from my team in Arizona. So on their side, they've been super helpful to just make sure that, you know, to get me through this year. I have my coaches here who do help me as well on the side. But we only have one swimming pool. And so it's sometimes it's, it is a little difficult there. Despite the small population, there are a lot of kids, you know, coming to swim. Um, so in terms of timing, it's quite hard. I swim at odd hours of the day just to avoid like busy times because we only have one swimming pool and our facilities aren't great. But I mean, it's been OK to work with. Um, it's not really optimal going to the Olympic Games, but I guess it is what it is. And, you know, try to make the best out of a bad situation. And It's not all that bad. I mean, it really could be worse. So in that sense, I am lucky. And I'm also lucky that, you know, I've been able to have access to a swimming pool, I guess, for the last year where I know a lot of countries, you know, they've gone to complete lockdowns where a lot of athletes weren't able to get to their practice environments, which is, you know, obviously you, you don't want that in the, you know, the year where you're having the Olympic Games. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't have a long Olympic history. Um, we don't have an Olympic medal. I'm not even sure we've ever had a finalist, maybe a semi-finalist uh, from a boxer. But um, I mean, we are slowly investing more in sports here. And I'm hoping to see a lot more for, you know, the younger athletes who are coming up. Um, I want them to have, you know, more opportunities than the rest of us have had. So yeah, pretty excited for the future. What kind of support have you gotten from the Seychelles Olympic Committee? Um, so they've actually been really supported and uh, supportive and we're actually quite lucky. So as a smaller country, not exactly as a 
financially able as you know other countries were given these uh, Olympic solidarity scholarships, which quite a few countries in Africa awarded uh, are awarded. So they give uh, a handful of athletes. Uh, basically a grant, you know, like some scholarship money to use in any way they'd like that's going to get them to the Olympic Games or help them qualify for the Olympic Games. So I was one of the lucky athletes. I think there were only six of us in all the sports, and I think I was the only swimmer, actually. Um, So I've been able to use this money to help, you know, finance training camps uh, throughout the last few years or sending me to competitions, which has been really helpful. It's just a shame that obviously the pandemic stopped us from, you know, being able to travel and use that money in, you know, in a beneficial way. Um, So now I'm able to now obviously fly and compete. So I'm trying to use that. But they've also been, I guess, supportive, you know, morally trying to keep us going. It's not, you know, especially in the pandemic. I mean, I guess that's what everyone's talking about now. Um, you know, they've even when we had a lockdown, they made sure we all, all the Olympic potentials had access um, to our training environment, which was really nice. Um, so in that sense, they were really supportive and obviously understand that you can't just, you know, stop training. It doesn't, it's not easy and it doesn't work that way. So, yeah. I'm curious where you got the idea to be an Olympic swimmer when there's only one pool <laughs> in the entire yeah. country. When you're yeah. a kid, obviously you live in an island, everyone's going to learn how to swim. But yeah. where did it go from I'm swimming because I live on an island to yeah. I want to compete in the Olympics? I mean, yeah, I've been swimming, I guess, like my whole life. My mom had me in the water really really young and you think actually being from an island that swimming is really popular here and um, it's actually not we actually are only now like really starting to encourage water safety with like our kids so yeah despite you know being from an island and being surrounded by water swimming isn't very popular here and it's not uh, something many people in our population find themselves gifted in or even comfortable with. So we're trying to change that now. But yeah, I've been in the water, I guess, I don't know, my whole life. My mom really encouraged it. I don't know. I guess it's just something I stuck with throughout like school, like swimming out in the after school clubs with my school. And then um, some coaches, I guess, scouted me from like these little competitions we used to do and took me into the junior national squad and then obviously moved my way up from there. But I guess it's never something I sat down and like decided, oh, I want to swim and I, I want to go like I want to swim to make it to the Olympics. I kind of just, you know, swam and swam and got a little better and better. And then I guess found myself at a stage where I was like, OK, you know, qualifying for the Olympics. Olympics is definitely possible and so that's kind of where I guess the dream came alive and that's what I then what I really started to work towards that and I would say I was about like maybe 15. One of my questions about being from a smaller comp- a country what is the view of the Olympics or what do people think about the Olympics in the Seychelles? I mean because you've also lived in the U.S. so you you get like we get very gun yeah. <laughs> We're going to have all these battles, but you have a, a, a small delegation, a small country. Do, uh, do people care or what do people think? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, like you said, being at school in America, I know how big the Olympics can be for you guys. And it's just the same for us. And and I think but maybe in a, in a different way, I guess you guys go to the Olympics, obviously, with, you know, like dreams of like 
uh, getting loads of medals and being at the top of the medal table and obviously, you know, like putting up a fight. Whereas for us, it is a little different. It's not to say that, you know, we're negative or we're just being realistic and pessimistic. And it's not that, you know, athletes here don't have dreams of, you know, getting an Olympic medal one day. But yeah, obviously we have to be realistic with, you know, our facilities and, you know, the limitations from coming from a very, very small country. But the Olympic Games is huge here. I mean, people get really excited by it, even if we don't have a huge delegation that, you know, get to go to it. But I think people get a little more excited because we are a small country. And when we do have the few athletes that qualify and make it on the the set Olympic standard, it is a huge deal for us because just that, you know, means so much. And I think for the population, the public who do support us, it's it's, I think for them, they're so proud to know that we do have that, you know, small representation from the African continent that could get to go to these Olympic Games. And so I think in that sense, it is really exciting for them. Given that the population is so small, does everyone know you? You know, do they know who you are I guess, and, and, yeah. and stop you yeah. on the street yeah. and, and say hello and wish you luck yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, in that sense, yeah, we we're we're that small, you know. I mean, yeah, like I said, the handful of athletes, you know, who do we do make a name for ourselves here or on the African continent. It is kind of like that. It is, I guess, I don't want to say it being like a celebrity here, but we really do get that support. And I think in some sense, I am really grateful that I'm from a really small country. Not because of all the praise that we get, but because of how, you know, how with our sports and like things we achieve it's just we're so little everybody comes together to support it and it's actually it's such a great thing and it's really heartwarming and I know for a fact I mean unless obviously you're an amazing star in the U.S. you might not necessarily get the same thing from the public or it maybe won't be as visible I don't I'm not really sure to be honest but it's just really great here to see you know uh, the support you get from the public and it's it's actually incredible i mean you know despite you know political differences racial differences or you know any differences we might have in terms of sports and you know supporting our athletes and they are really great here so it it's 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 actually sometimes it is really nice to be from a small small place now you have gone to school in the uk as well as the us correct yeah yeah so what was that like training in those kind of environments, especially with in an NCAA team, going from sort of this, you know, couple coaches kind of thing in the one swimming pool to this much more rigid and established system. I it, honestly like it's been a great experience. I mean, yeah, coming from, you know, my little Seychelles to like, you know, having literally the bare basics, kind of just doing little bits to keep us fit, not really learning very much. Um, to then going yeah to the UK, where then I was really exposed to you know some really fast swimmers and some amazing coaches, and it was great there. I actually really liked it. Um, I would say that's where I really started to I guess you know open up to my potential, and then going to the US and being in the NCAA system, the Division One system, and it was just so incredible. I mean, I could not believe the facilities like you guys have and have available to all your athletes and the support and the financial support, the moral support, everything is just so readily available. It's, it's no wonder you guys make some of the best, best athletes in the world. And I'm so grateful to have, you know, to be able to experience that. I mean, 
I'm hopefully, you know, going back this year for my senior year and hopefully for a fifth year after that as well. So I'm really excited to be able to, you know, benefit from your amazing system. And I just wish, you know, I hope that, you know, for the younger athletes that are coming off to me in the Seychelles, know that there is that opportunity out there, you know. So, yeah, but it's it's just been amazing. So I know we, we I I have a, a very specific swimming question. So I want to get some swimming questions yeah. in here as well. Yes. So you do backstroke and butterfly. When you specialize in a stroke, is it because you're good at the stroke or because you like the stroke? How what comes first? Oh, it's usually because you're good at it, and you probably end up not really liking your stroke just because you're doing it so much and over and over again. And like, let's say for example, yeah, I specialize in backstroke and butterfly. My dream or my wish is that you know I look at the breaststroke because I'm like, wow, I wish I could swim breaststroke. And it tends to be that way with every stroke. You know, a freestyle wishes you know she or he could do butterfly or. A breaststroker wishes they could do freestyle and it's it's like kind of I guess you know we want what we can't do <laughs> um but yeah normally it's because you're good at a stroke I mean I have a love hate and love hate relationship with backstroke and butterfly it's because doing it so much you really do get fed up but I guess you love it at the end of the day so <laughs> what makes you good at backstroke particularly because that's obviously the only stroke that you do the other way <laughs> for lack of yeah. a better word but yeah what, yeah what, yeah what physically <laughs> makes you good at that I mean I guess it's like body composition that's like plays a, a huge role you know like broad shoulders really strong quads um, and legs and yeah I guess like I don't know I guess you know, obviously, you to be a competitive swimmer, you're usually, you know, have some gift or some talent to an extent. Um, but I guess then we, you know, even more specifically, we're talented between the four strokes, you know. Um, but yeah, I would say probably body composition plays a huge role in what, what stroke you're really good at. I mean, I am not a breaststroker that is the one stroke I cannot do and I can't I can't seem to figure out why I mean I put in hours and hours of training just to try and figure this stroke out but I just I, I just don't seem to have it in me and I think it just might be the way my body is or I just don't seem to move in the way a breaststroker should so I think that has a huge thing to do with it yeah <laughs> Does the broad shoulders help with butterfly? Because when I was a kid, I was a breaststroker and butterfly was my worst. And I still will try it occasionally and be like, oh my gosh, I'm glad I got to the end of the pool. Because it's, it, I don't, I mean, <laughs> when you watch it on TV, it looks so smooth, but I don't know if you're not a swimmer, you don't necessarily understand the effort it takes to get both of your arms out of the water. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's an enormous yeah. amount of effort. Yeah, no, it butterfly is a special one in that sense. Um, but yeah, I'd say really strong and broad shoulders, usually a long torso as well, uh, seems to be quite helpful. And they say, yeah, longer arms and shorter legs. Um, obviously, you know, you everybody's different. You you do have the ones that totally stray away from, I guess, the stereotypical norm of that one stroke. But yeah, every stroke I would say has you know, a specific body composition requirement. However, I don't think it's necessary, but I, I do think it, it does help how, how good you are at the stroke. Yeah, I was never physically able to do butterfly. Like in my, <laughs> I never could get my arms yeah. all the way around. It's a hard one. Just... It's, it, it is a hard one. 
Yeah, it's all fun. <laughs> when you're doing backstroke, I always wonder, can you really see? Because a lot of time they have the flags up to give you a guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess when you're doing it for so long, you just, you kind of know what everything feels like. So for me, like, I, I know what a 50 feels like. I know how many strokes I do from one end of the pool to the next. I know where the flags are at this point. You know, when we're younger, we're told, you know, you need to count your strokes from the flag to the wall. It does get to a point where a lot of swimmers, like, actually don't have to. You just kind of know from seeing the flag, you know, okay, okay, there it is. You know, you don't have to count anymore. But yeah, you just, you really just know how your stroke feels, what your speed feels like. Um, but yeah, but backstroke, it really depends. I mean, when you swim outdoors and you have that, the, the glare from the sun in your eyes, it does make it really difficult. And that's kind of one of the issues I'm having with here in this, in sunny Seychelles. But other than that, usually, yeah, you have a, you know, pretty good peripheral vision as well. So it's actually not as bad as it, it would seem. For backstroke, you're allowed to do a flip turn, like turn you have to turn over and do a flip turn. Yeah. When are you allowed to turn over? Um, so you're only so basically so you count your strokes from the flag or you know you know your strokes from the flag. You're only allowed base when you once you turn on your front one freestyle stroke into the wall, and then you flip turn and then you're back again. And I, I realize at the Olympic level, people don't miss the wall likely but no. there is a chance yeah. to miss the wall oh yeah i mean i'm sure if someone's having a really off day you probably could but like you will have actually even at the olympic games a lot of athletes who say they turn too early or they turn a little too late so then their legs were a little more compressed towards the wall and not bent at a 90 degree angle so you do have like you know little mishaps here and there but i doubt you'd have an athlete that you know completely misses it um at that level anyway Unlike me, who <laughs> smack, I smack my hand on the back. Oh, no. I don't realize I've hit the end of you the pool. Wall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is why I've stopped swimming. Oh, no. <laughs> For both strokes, at the end of the, the race, where do you decide, oh, I'm going to glide it in versus I'm going to take another stroke? Do you know what I'm do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no. I would say probably at about the flags. So like I guess five meters from the wall, you kind of know what's gonna happen. You know, you're like you're either kind of like, oh no, like I'm not gonna make the wall. And so then you kind of adjust your stroke whether you don't take a breath or you do take a breath to give you that extra, you know, into the wall. So it is a little tricky sometimes. Like you really do have to be good at judging your stroke and ju judging your swim into the wall and your speed as well. Um, it is really easy to, you know, make a mistake, there, especially with butterfly. Yeah, like I said, you really do have to be good at judging, you know, the length of your stroke and the speed you're going at. And yeah, like I said, like uh, I guess about five meters from the wall, that's where you're kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? And you have to really think about it super fast. Obviously you're coming in really fast. You've got about probably like a second and a half to like, you know, change what you're going to do or change your speed slightly. Or like I said, breathe or not breathe. So yeah, you kind of just from practice, you just get good at it, I guess. When we're watching swimming on television, obviously, especially for Tokyo, we're all going to be watching it on, yeah. on television. I think the TV loses the speed of how fast you're actually going. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, you know, kilometers per hour, how quickly you're actually moving? Actually, I don't. But I know, I remember, at the, I think it was the last Olympics in Rio. 
now with technology you know they've got so many cool things going on like when you're watching it on tv you can now see like they have like a little you know record pace like world record pace or olympic record pace which you can follow on the tv which is cool and even i know for swimming now i'm not sure if they had it in rio but i know at the last world championships they actually do put how fast you're going i think it's like meters per second or I'm not really sure how they managed to calculate it, but it's really cool. And you get to see the speed like into the wall and like out of it as well. So it's really cool to actually be able to follow it. I mean, you know, thanks to technology. Um, but yeah, I guess like it is different watching on TV than when you are watching it live. Uh, yeah. So it's pretty cool though. When they get smell vision they'll have to learn how to sm- pipe in the chlorine yeah. smell. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know if we'll be thankful for that, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, the, you need that steaminess. Yeah, no. In the, I, in, the, in the chlorine. I've had enough of that steaminess chlorine, and I don't think anybody would be too happy with that. <laughs> uh, okay, so you've swum in a variety of pools, and I know just from swimming and uh, also swimming in a variety of pools i just go oh this pool is faster versus this pool you know because I, oh. I i used to in munich so i would go to the olympic stadium and that's a beautiful pool it swims very fast compared yeah. to my ymca pool at home <laughs> yeah what makes the pool faster or slower so it tends so basically i guess yeah how the pool is built so the depth of the water is really important obviously you don't want it too deep or too shallow as well. So basically the way I've read about it as well, I'm not an expert though. So obviously when you're swimming and swimming and swimming and you go towards the wall and you flip turn, a lot of the the waves and the energy of the waves obviously bounce off the wall and like go underneath. So the depth of the pool is so important so that the energy created from, you know, the swimmer's waves has somewhere to go that isn't going to get in the way of the swimmer themselves. So the depth of the pool is really important as well as, so if you have a swimming pool, which I think most recreational pools tend to be built like this, it's kind of like, like, I guess, like obviously a box or like a cube where the water doesn't flow out um, into, you know, where it gets generated, I mean, over and over again. It kind of like, it's it's stuck in. If you, un- I, I'm not really sure how to explain it, but the water has nowhere to go on the sides of the pool. So obviously then again, that brings us back to like all the waves and the energy just kind of coming back to the middle of the pool and creating even more waves. So basically all the energy generated by these waves has to have somewhere to go, which is usually on the sides in the gutters. So that's usually how like a really fast pool would be built. And then again, you have like the temperature of the pool plays a huge role. Uh, Warmer pools, you're not going to be swimming very fast just because, you know, your body then is a little too warm. You do want it like, you know, a little colder. And I think also they say um, the stadium that the pool is being built in or the building has a certain shape or I'm not really sure coverage as well for like the oxygen that's going to be inside the the arena. I think a lot of factors do play a role in like how fast the pool is. Um, I'm not an expert on it. I just know some of the basics. Yeah. And what you like. Yeah. What makes a good stadium or competition pool for you? I'd say like, I really like a pool that isn't crowded, like has a huge area. It just, 
for me, it feels like even if it might be bigger, it does feel less overwhelming because you do have that area of just kind of like, you know, empty space around you. Whereas when you're in like a, a more, you know, packed environment, there just seems to be so much going on around you. And for me, it creates like this little anxiety, which I really don't like to have before my race. I don't like to be fidgety. I don't like to be distracted by so many things around me. I kind of just like to have, you know, like a quiet space, I guess, maybe like a distance from, you know, where all the action is happening and, you know, where all, I guess, all the other athletes will be like warming up or, getting dressed or you know cheering for their teammates and it's all great to have that it's just when it's it's too packed there's a little too much going on <laughs> strategy of heats versus a finals or heats versus semifinals versus finals how do you approach that i mean i guess for most most athletes and i guess it also depends what competition you know you're competing at if it's a really high level you obviously want to give it your absolute most in the heats to make it to the next round with whether it's semis or straight to the finals in the evening but yeah it's definitely i mean i also do like to give every swim i swim like my absolute best shot i don't i'm not really someone who'll save my energy just because even if I know I'll make the final or whether I won't make the final, I want to be able to get a best time. So I will, you know, give it my absolute best. And then in the evening, if I'm able to better that, then that's obviously a bonus. Um, but in between heats and finals and or semifinals, definitely taking a nap seems to be a ritual between um, among swimmers. Just because we tend to wake up quite early for heat and know that we have to go back in the afternoon to swim, you know, so many events. So taking a nap, you know, either after your lunch or depending on how much time we have between the sessions. Yeah, taking a nap tends to be a huge thing among swimmers. And I'm not sure if it's the same um, in other sports, but yeah, it's very popular in swimming. <laughs> what will be a successful Olympics for you in terms of your swim? Um, honestly, for me, just, you know, being there and like being able to participate in, you know, in the games is such a huge thing already. I mean, going back to, you know, coming from a small island, like going to the Olympics is a huge dream, something that's like out of reach for so many people here. I mean, I guess it's the same, you know, in a bigger country where obviously your population is much bigger. So it's a lot more competitive, but just coming from a really small island and being being able to be at such a huge event, I mean, that's already so amazing. But I guess my goal is to obviously hit a best time, hopefully, um, this time around anyway. I mean, if I'm still around for the next Olympics, which I am definitely working towards and I hope to be, I will definitely aim, you know, to make it to, you know, a semifinal or a final. Um, but yeah, this time around, I'm just really, you know, grateful to have been given the chance to qualify and qualified and now you know hopefully the games do go on and I get to be there I'm so excited (laughs) (laughs) I mean like because you've been to some of these big events like the the African games and the the Indian Ocean Island games and and that's exciting because you still have that whole multi-country experience but this just is a whole different level yeah, it's huge. I mean, I really do feel like I'm going to be, you know, like a number amongst millions when I'm there. But like just, you know, that feeling of knowing I got here and like all the hard work you put in. I'm sure every athlete obviously experiences that. It's just to be there, like, I, I don't even know what it's going to feel like, but I feel like it's going to be great, you know? <laughs> 
has your Olympic committee talked about how you will get there and how long you get to stay? Do you know? Yeah, I th- they're actually in the middle now of like coming up with our own protocol and um, obviously dates of arrival in Tokyo and dates of departure. We've told we've been told we probably won't be able to get there more than three days prior to when the opening ceremony was going to be, which I think was something that was set by the IOC. But yeah, I mean, all of our sports have we've been told that once our sport finishes, we'll be leaving the next day. So I think they're yet to confirm flights and dates and all the nitty gritty stuff. But yeah, it doesn't sound like we'll be there for very long. Which I guess, like, I guess it's not going to be the same experience as, you know, some other athletes have had at previous Olympics. But just the fact that, it, you know, they're really de- determined on having these Olympics this year. I'm really grateful. So either way, I get to be there. I get to compete. I get to do what I love. So I'm not complaining too much. But yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be different. Are you planning to march for the opening ceremony since swimming's the first week? I mean, I'd love to. Um, based off the schedule, um, I don't swim until a few days after actually swimming begins, till like the third day. So, which is actually good for me. So, if there is an opening ceremony and they do, you know, have a march, I would definitely love to be there. I mean, it'll be a first for me, and I would love to experience it. In April, you did a long distance swim between a couple of in the Seychelles yeah what tell us a little bit about that and what you were raising money for so basically um it was a I guess a 15 kilometer swim from two of our smaller islands here in the Seychelles so I started on one island that was called Ladigue and I swam to another island called Prale and then I swam back so it was a total of 15 kilometers and it's just so back in December January we had we went into our second lockdown and I was lucky enough to be able to swim, but as the only person, swimmer who's qualified uh, to go for Olympics, or I'm the only one who's, you know, I'm going from the Seychelles, I was able to, you know, have access to a swimming pool when nobody else was, which I am so grateful for and I'm really lucky. But it was a little sad to go there every day and it was just completely empty. It was just me in a huge eight lane pool. And it's just, it got, it did get really boring after a few days and it went on like this for quite, uh, I think it was like eight weeks. Um, so it, it, I'm really grateful I got to swim and it was great being able to train, but it was just really sad and lonely. And I would just, I'd get bored and I hadn't competed in so long. Like I said, it's been over a year now. And so I just felt like I really wanted to do something. And I just thought about this crazy idea, which I don't know what, to me, it seemed feasible, but a lot of people thought, firstly, like, what are you doing? Like, this is the open water. And then I thought about, you know, I'm not just going to, you know, do the swim just for the sake of it. I, I would want I want to tie it with, you know, a good cause. And mental health is something that is so dear to me. I mean, it's something I've struggled with in the past. And I know so many other athletes who have. And especially now with the pandemic, you know, being stuck at home and not being able to do things that we're used to. Um, it's been really hard on people. So I decided to reach out to a few um, non-governmental organizations and see if they had any mental pro- uh, mental health projects that, you know, needed, you know, financial help. And so I reached out to a couple of people and that's where I found an e-counseling 
platform that was being set up because of the pandemic. But again, sadly, with Seychelles, we don't necessarily get the financial backing for a lot of things. And they actually set up this this project last March. So over a year ago, after our very first lockdown, but they were unable to just, you know, get it going because they didn't have the financial backing. And so I guess I decided to, you know, I thought that was something that was really important. We don't know if we're going to go into another lockdown or not with the pandemic and social distancing. I thought, you know, an e-counseling psychosocial support platform is something that's so important now. And so from there, I guess I started organizing this event and I called it Mind Over Matter. And so, yeah, I swam between these two islands, uh, 15 kilometers to raise money for mental health and also raise awareness. And so we managed to come up with a sum of, I think it came up to about $41,000, which is way more than I was expecting. I mean, you know, these are really difficult times financially. So I guess I wasn't expecting to, you know, raise that much money, but it was so amazing. Like the amount of people that came together to donate and not just in Seychelles, it seemed to have reached a lot of places around the world, which I thought was really cool. So yeah, um, that's basically what I did. Do you think marathon swimming is now an option or was that like, (laughs) oh yeah, this is a lot, this is hard. Oh, it was not easy. It was hard. It's not something, you know, I trained for specifically. I didn't alter my training at all for this open water swim. I don't think it's something I will do competitively in any way. I take my hats off to all the open water and marathon swimmers out there because, wow, that was actually quite hard. And I I did take it quite easy because I didn't know what 15 kilometers was going to be. Like, I've never done that before. But, yeah, I do take my hats off to marathon swimmers. Good on you guys. Like, it's really hard. But, I mean, I'm definitely planning in the future, you know, to do something similar, uh, maybe for a different cause or a different project maybe a different distance, maybe a little longer or less. I'm not sure, but not competitively. No way. <laughs> Did you get stung by anything? I was just... <laughs> yeah, actually, that was my biggest fear was actually sharks. I was really scared of sharks. And I, I went in there still that morning and I was like, oh my God, like if I don't get eaten today, this is like a miracle. Like I'll be thankful. Um, but I did get stung by a lot of plankton. It was kind of like little mini jellyfish. And I could see them as well. And they were just all over my body. And it actually, it started within the first five minutes of the swim. And I thought, oh my goodness, like if I have another like four hours of this, this is not going to be fun. And it went on for a really long time. And I guess after a while, I just, I got used to the stings. And I just told myself, you know, don't think about it. Just keep going. Uh, but yeah, that it wasn't fun. And I had a, a huge rash all over my body when I was finished. So that wasn't very nice. <laughs> I think this should be like an annual thing, like just two different islands. All the yeah. Seychelles. <laughs> we'll check them all off. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, we've got we've got 115 islands. I mean, that would take me a really long time. <laughs> you know, goals. <laughs> Go, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, make the Olympics, <laughs> swim all the Seychelles. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Allison? Well, I, I have to ask the embarrassing question. Felicity, your hair is gorgeous. And how do you keep <laughs> it like that when you are swimming every day? I get that question all the time. First of all, thank you I mean, very it's, much. It's long. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It's not a joke here. 
<laughs> um, actually, I really don't do very much, to be honest. I don't wash it with shampoo very often because apparently that is bad for your hair. I do. I do use a lot of conditioner, though. So once I finish washing my hair, I leave the conditioner in just overnight. And because apparently oh, my hair just, uh, you know, I mean, it makes sense. She kind of just thought, you know, leave your conditioner in because then it acts as a mask against the chlorine, which I think has really helped my hair in the last few years. But I also use coconut oil, which obviously is really popular here on the island. But I use coconut oil, which I think really makes it, gives it that extra curl and volume. So I definitely recommend coconut oil. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's the secret. Thank you so much, Felicity. You can follow Felicity on Facebook. She is Felicity Passon. And on Instagram, she is Felicity underscore Passon. Oh, I learned so much. Oh, I know. And if hearing her name wants to make you start singing the song from The Little Mermaid, which I will not say since we don't have rights. <laughs> I discussed that with Felicity and she said it was totally okay. <laughs> but she makes me want to talk to other nations that have smaller delegations than what the U.S. puts together. So uh, thank you, Felicity, for taking the time and giving us that insight. And if you have a small country that you'd like to hear about, let us know and we will see if we can make that work. Especially after once Beijing is over, we'll have a little bit of time before Paris to kind of explore more topics in depth that are a little bit different. So uh, we'd love to hear what countries you want to learn about. Email us at flamealifepod at gmail.com. Welcome to Shukflistan. Yes, Speaking of small countries at the Olympics. <laughs> That's right. Although Shuklastan's getting pretty big. I know. We keep having babies. <laughs> we have well, babies. not us, but. <laughs> the citizenry? Our yes. citizens? Birth rate's getting high. That's right. Uh, so we are checking in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. This is our roster of past guests. Starting off with a swimmer, Mallory Comerford, who unfortunately will not be going to the Olympics this year. Uh, the, the U.S. swimming trials was this past week, and she did not get into the top two of any of her events. So a lot of Shukflistanis have been very busy at the USA track and field trials. Dawn Harpo Nelson placed fifth in her heat, one spot out of qualification for the semifinals, and she placed 21st in the overall heats. And... Shot putter Michelle Carter dropped out because she is recovering from having a tumor removed from her ankle. Thankfully, her tumor is benign, and she's planning to be back for world championships next year. And hammer thrower Deanna Price is competing today, Thursday, and she also extended a long-term contract with Nike. Good for her. Oh, Deanna. I'm glad Don Harbour Nelson competed again. I mean, her event is so tough. There's Stacked. Yes, so much talent. So I'm I'm really sorry she didn't go further on, but it was great to see her race again. Bombed about Michelle Carter. You know, literally two days before her event. Right. What happened? So that was scary, but thankfully not serious. And uh, the nice thing for American listeners is that the World Athletics World Championships is in Eugene, Oregon next year. So she definitely plans to compete for that. And, uh, you know, it might be a Keep the Flame Alive meetup because I want to see that stadium so much. It looks beautiful. 
I'm not sure how beautiful it's been this week at 120 degrees on the track. Well, you know, it's still pretty on the TV. On the TV, it's pretty. <laughs> uh, modern pentathlete Samantha Schultz is having a bonfire clothing fundraiser. Get your Team Sammy Modern Pentathlon shirts and hoodies by the end of this weekend and help fund her trip to Tokyo. It is at bonfire.com slash Team Sammy, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Boxer Ginny Fuchs is featured on PBS's two-part Mysteries of Mental Illness docuseries, which premiered this week. Uh, it's at pbs.org slash mysteries of mental illness, and we will have a link to that as well. Lots of Tokyo 2020 news, not surprisingly. The organizing committee announced that spectators will be allowed at Tokyo 2020. So venues will be allowed to be at 50% or maximum 10,000 people. This reduces the number of tickets they've sold by 910,000. So, you know, when you when you think about tickets, they've sold 2.72 million tickets total. So for eight sports and the opening and closing ceremonies, there's going to be a ticket lottery. And those are kind of big sports or in bigger venues or have a lot of people already. They sold a lot of tickets already. So athletics, baseball, football, golf, modern pentathlon, interestingly enough, rugby sevens, softball and surfing are going to have a ticket lottery. My so this is for people who have already purchased those tickets. Yes. And now you're going to go into the lottery because only 50% capacity is allowed. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. The Kyoto News reports that there are going to be no alcohol sales at the venues. Earlier this week, they were going to allow alcohol because uh, Asahi Breweries is a major sponsor. And then there was a lot of criticism about that. So organizers reversed that decision, which not surprising, but uh, I'm sure one sponsor is very bummed. <laughs> Fans are going to be required to wear masks at all times. No cheering, high-fiving, or linking arms with others. Uh, Kyoto News reported that due to the heat, spectators can remove their masks outdoors if they can ensure they have two meters of distance from other people. So, And, and then the other thing is that you uh, spectators are asked to keep their ticket stubs or ticket information for at least two weeks after they've gone to an event. Because if anyone tests positive... The organizers will post on the website and social media the date of the infected person's attendance and their seat number so that you know if you were in kind of proximity to that person. So the announcement of spectators is, I want to say happy because it's going to be nice for the athletes to have people to cheer them on. It's going to be nice to hear that crowd clapping going on as well, but Tokyo 2020 president Seiko Hashimoto said that this is not a done deal. If COVID-19 cases spike, they could ban spectators altogether. In one way, that's a concern because uh, today, which is Wednesday, the 23rd, Tokyo reported 619 new cases, which is the highest single day spike in about a month. So that's a little concerning, but hopefully they can rein that back in. Vaccinations were up to about 7% of the population, which I got to say it's pretty quick, given that just a couple weeks ago we were at like 2%, but it's still not a whole lot of people who are vaccinated. So hopefully they'll be able to bring that in and spectators will be able to be at the games. For the Paralympics, spectator capacities will be decided on July 16th. 
So hopefully they will be able to have spectators as well. The Asahi Shimbun reported that uh, more officials have been cut from the games. And this is also kind of in line with all of the concerns that there are going to be too many people from outside Japan at the Olympics. So before the original postponement, they were going to have about 180,000 officials and family members, and they've now brought it down to about 53,000 people. And that breaks down even further. So just 41,000 officials will be for the Olympics and 12,000 will be at the Paralympics. And the, the big part of that is don't bring your family members. Yeah, and half of those officials will be covering tennis. <laughs> you think? Well, tennis has what? Like seven or eight linesmen yeah. on every match? Yeah, because they have like the, the sidelines on either end and then the back line. And then you have the main right. umpire. And the net guy. So, mm -hmm. And there's going to be at any given time at the beginning 13 matches going on at the same time. Wow. So I'm telling you. <laughs> They're going to have like a thousand <laughs> tennis officials. Delegations are starting to arrive. We talked about the Australian softball team got there to Japan already. A team from Uganda has arrived. And unfortunately, they had an athlete and a coach who have tested positive upon arrival. The interesting thing that is that both of them were vaccinated and tested negative when they left Uganda. So It'll be interesting to see how, if this is going to be something that happens a lot, that you test negative, you have a vaccine, or even if you test negative and aren't vaccinated, just the, the act of traveling spurs a positive test. So we'll keep an eye on that too. Or just the time, because it takes time for the positive test. Right. So if you were exposed, say, on Thursday, you travel on Friday, on Friday you tested negative, you arrive Saturday, because it's a long trip, and you test positive. And then there's the issue of quality of tests. That's true as well. And with one month to go, uh, the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee has released its mobile app, which I have to update my login because I can't remember my password. <laughs> there's an app for that. <laughs> I think it's going to have a lot of things that are on the fan zone portion of the website. So, and then uh, you'll be able to, uh, so far I was able to tell it what my favorite sports were. So it can send me notifications about how. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So you could, you can do up to eight sports for the Olympics and Paralympics separately. So that's pretty cool. But I will be digging into that over the next few days. That will do it for this week. Let us know what other small countries you'd like to hear about. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT or Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Big announcement from us. We have so many pre-Tokyo interviews scheduled that we will be adding a Monday show to the lineup from now until the games. We'll kick that off next Monday with Australian table tennis Olympian and Paralympian Melissa Tapper as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.
my god like if i don't get eaten today this is like a miracle like i'll be thankful 